So to move on the inner landscape, that is uh, to, to really move in a sense because outwardly we're kind of going up the down escalator uh, in terms of trying to progress by acquisition materially. It's kind of an oxymoron, material progression, material progress. Um, so to move on the inner landscape is to, is to really get somewhere hmm? and to have some guidance in that regard that would be helpful if not essential. It's uncharted territory to some extent. At the same time, it's very much uh, the homeland, if you will, the homeland of the, of the heart. But for home-going, a home-knowing person is, is essential. Hmm? So some guidance. And with that... Uh, we um, are called tonight, as I understand, the uh, the form of the program to ask for further questions, any kind of question, and ask a question about that or about anything else. Don't be shy. Enough. So, there's a pretty powerful message there, I think. Uh, to speak about the... go back and read the middle, too. So. Right. To, I, of course, I wrote that quite a long time ago. I wrote it a long time ago, actually, initially, to be for some of my students in Eastern Europe. But it didn't get published. Uh, but it was published in English and... Now there's this edition, so it's a small book. It's a very kind of introductory book. Um, but you ask about the ego. Um, well, well the, the part that I like was that, that you don't give it up. You, okay. Okay. That you somehow embrace it. Well, I, I have the hardest time with my false ego. Right? right. So I think what you're saying, if I understand correctly, and it's a good point, use the term false ego, so ego means identity, so false, we have a false identity. And if we have a false identity, the obvious implication, at least of the language used to say that, is that there must be a real identity. Hmm? So that's the part you liked, I think. Yeah. <laughs> right. So if we're, to, if, we're to, if we're to do away with the false ego, somebody's going to do away with it. <laughs> so who is that? That's the idea. So the false, the false ego or the material ego, or, we, or sometimes I use the term of the conventional ego. Conventional ego is that sense of self that's arrived at, as we were saying a, a little bit briefly this morning, by the use of the two small letters that create a big problem, um, M and Y in the form of my. So I, I, or my ego, my identity, I is a product of my my. If our I is a product of our my, of our sense of what's ours, when in fact nothing belongs to us, as time tells us, then that identity derived from this false sense of ownership and proprietorship and so forth, possessiveness, 
uh, is not something to take to the bank. Hmm? That's something you can't rely on, that, that sense of identity. Hmm? It's subject to change, to tr- transformation, uh, and to realizing at some point that it, it really doesn't ex- exist. The composite sense of I that, for example, I, what am I? I am American, let's say. I'm a male. I'm, I ha- I'm a Hindu. Uh, <laughs> And so on, and extends from from a gross to kind of a subtle, like I'm cool, or maybe that's an old term and it's not cool anymore. But <laughs> I've been around a while too, so uh, you know, I'm this or I'm that. And my personality, uh, these things gets more subtle. If I say I'm fat or I'm thin, it's one thing. If I say if somebody else says you're stupid, I get more offended than than. So we're talking about then the mind and the intellect, the more subtle aspects of our material being. Our material being is, has two dimensions, a psychic and a physical dimension. Hmm? Um, and so the psychic dimension is more subtle, obviously, and, and our identity tends, of ourself tends to be um, our false identity, if you will, of ourself tends to be more refined as we move from a physical sense of describing ourselves to a mental kind of sense of self like I'm thoughtful, um, I'm introspective, I'm such and such and so on, rather than I'm fat or I'm thin or I'm old or I'm, I'm young. Uh, but this, so this is a, a kind of a, a range, if you will, of the subtle gross to subtle or subtle to gross sense of, false sense of what I am, because I'm not really necessarily uh, intelligent, I'm not really fat or thin, I'm not um, so many things. Hmm? I am, we are, the conscious observer. Hmm? And matter is functioning, according to the Vedanta, on a gross and a subtle level, on a physical and a psychic level. Hmm? And so we have identified with matter and an identity that's formed as a result of that union is the false identity. And it's, it's psychic, it has a psychic dimension, it has a physical dimension. And we are very much wrapped up in that. Hmm? Um, it's something like if you were to take consciousness, the subjective, as I was speaking about this morning, the, the, the um, uh, experiencer, and mix the experiencer with that which is experienced, the gross world of things and so forth, in between the gross world of things and the self, which is consciousness, which is altogether and categorically different than things, in between that is a, is a subtle form of a thing that we call the mind and the intellect. It's a subtle form of matter, and it becomes the, the uh, mediator, mind, if you will, between consciousness proper itself, the real you, 
the observer, the experiencer, and the gross world of things. We, we, like we say, we have five senses. Sometimes we say we have six senses. The sixth sense is the mind. So the mind is included as a sense, but in a sense, it's different than the other senses, isn't it? it, it it's very subtle. It can take the shape of things. Hmm? With my sense of taste, I can, I can taste taste. With my sense of smell, I can smell aromas. With my sense of sight, I can see forms. With my mind, I can kind of take the shape of a thing. The mind's very subtle, and so it almost seems like it's spiritual. Therefore, if people can do things with their mind, like that other people can't, uh, they might think they're very special or very spiritual. If I could bend a nail with my mind, I've never seen it. They say they can do it, but then we think, whoa, he's very special. He's different, but that doesn't necessarily make one um, spiritual. Uh, there was a festival once years ago. It's a story, but makes the point. And all the different yogis were coming and showing their prowess, their spiritual accomplishment. And among them, one of them walked, walked across the river. And all, everyone was impressed and said, well, this person is obviously very spiritually accomplished. But there was one bhakta, one devotee in, 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 in the, uh, 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 of Krishna in the assembly. And he wasn't impressed. They said, why are you not impressed? Paying your respect to that he's walking on the water. He said, well, I, for a rupee, I could take a boat across. So it's, I mean, there must be more to, to spiritual life than that. Some, some extraordinary, to, to accomplish an ordinary thing in an extraordinary way um, doesn't make the accomplishment extraordinary, necessarily. To go to all that trouble when I could have just for a rupee. I, so anyway... <laughs> So there are many subtle powers that the mind can harness and so forth. But the mind is a subtle form of matter. And it's the, it's the medium through which consciousness communicates, if you will, with the gross world. And so what happens is this self that we are, consciousness, it interacts with matter and then uh, through the... Uh, this mechanism of the mind, the, the, the body follows suit and we touch things, we see things, we hear sounds and in a sense these, these impressions are related into the mind and we experience what's called in science or philosophy of mind qualia, 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 qualitative experiences and so forth. Of, of what the world's like, some semblance of what matter's like. You don't really know what it's like, but you get some feeling about it. Hmm? Uh, and so there's a self in there, a false self that's formed on the basis of these qualitative experiences of the gross world. It's hot, it's cold, it's red, it's white, it's black, it's happy, it's sad all these kind of mental impressions. And those mental impressions are what form this very fleeting sense of self, which we call the false self, or the false identity, the false ego. Hmm? Because why is it false? It's a, it, because for you it's hot, for me it's cold. For you it's, 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 it's dim, and for me it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, 
it's, uh, it's, uh, it's too bright. Hmm? So which is it? Is it hot or is it cold? These uh, are perceptions derived from senses and mind, and you have a set of them and I have a set of them, and we're getting different perceptions. So are we really getting at the nature of, of, the, of being hmm? through that, such instruments? No, hmm? we're not. And, in the, and it, what's happening is an identity is forming on the basis of your impressions and my impressions that put us at odds to one extent with one another. You say it's cold. I say it's hot. You say it's time to go to bed. I say it's time to stay up. What you, and so all of us have this sense of being different to one extent or another from one another. Huh? And the difference is based on perceptions fostering impressions in the mind. In the mind is this fleeting sense of self that we call me that for me it's cold for you with you know and so forth uh, is arrived at and we're, we're living in, in, in thinking that, that that's that that's me and then we wonder why we can't you know get along with people or other people can't get along uh, you know we live in a world of, of our mind so to speak we've created an, an, an identity therein we're not comfortable inside of it but we think everybody else should be hmm? that's not very reasonable. We want people to you know, see things the way we do, but even the way we see things is not very... We're feeling a little uncomfortable uh, because that's not our real self. Hmm? That ego, that, 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 that's a bundle in Hume's language even from you know, centuries ago. Uh, just a bundle of, of experiences and there's nothing really uh, more to it than that. So sometimes in science or philosophy of mind, they look uh, like science, I mean like uh, neuroscience. So they look and they see, hey, there's nothing there really. And they say there's no self, but, but they fail to, this is kind of like mm, William James's my, the false ego, but forgetting about the I, because you cannot do away with the I. I means, in this sense, experiential reality. Hmm? We are a unit of first-person experience. <laughs> you can't do away with that. Hmm? You are the experiencer, hmm? the witness of, of all this. And the idea in yoga is to start to witness that false self hmm? and how you, are, you start to misidentify with it and uh, give more credence to it and that's all, that's all your problems because that self has problems. <laughs> you can be sure. That self is, has problems. That self cannot endure. So we cater to it. We, we, we plug into it, so to speak, and we're finding ourselves having problems like a virtual reality. You just plugged into a virtual computer reality and you're thinking you've got all kinds of problems. Somebody's tapping you on the shoulder and says, turn that thing off. <laughs> you got a life. Get up. Hmm? So... So yoga is, is really, um, in one sense, we need perhaps to hear a little bit to get orientated, oriented. What's the, what's, like in Gita, for example, the Gita, we were speaking from the Gita this morning. 
the, uh, Krishna is speaking and to his friend Arjuna, he's a warrior. So it's a metaphor for you know, hunting season on the ego, basically is what the Gita is about. Hmm? And metaphors like using the sword of knowledge to, 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 to slash the ignorance of the false sense of self. And so it means, means that yoga is like a challenge. It's like, you know, we just sit there, right? <laughs> but it's actually very exciting. It's very alive. And, and uh, what we are doing with practices, the practices of yoga, especially in bhakti, these are non, I don't want to say irrational, but transrational practices, like the chanting. It's reasonable to chant, but the chanting is not a rational exercise. It's a transrational exercise in which the mind is to be turned off, the intellect is to be turned off, hmm? and we hear the, the chanting, and we chant, and we hear, we listen. This kind of, tra- kind of transrational exercise, this, what it does, it is cheta darpana marginam, this cheta, chitta. Hmm? Chitta is... Like us, in yoga psychology or philosophy, it's a subtle organ of perception. Like I'm saying, how the self, the observer, experiences the world. On this chitta, all these reflections come. Vrittis. Hmm? They're like waves in the ocean. Vrittis coming. Hmm? Impressions, and then a sense of self and what's important, and so on and so forth. So the chanting. In the beginning stage of the chanting, cheto, cheto means chitta, cheto darpanam marginam. The, the, the cheta is, is compared to a darpana, a mirror. So if you take a mirror and you point it over there, it's going to reflect all those things over here. So with the mirror of our consciousness, we're reflecting and bringing in impressions of the world. And it's forming an identity that's troublesome that you can't endure hmm, in, the, in, the, in, in the ultimate, which is ultimately troublesome, but, but otherwise it's troublesome in many other ways because it suffers, it, 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 it argues, it's, uh, it's got all kinds of problems. <laughs> um, so to cleanse the, the mirror, cheto darpana marjana, darpana means mirror, marjana means to cleanse. The chanting cleanses the mirror of that Chitta and Chitta Vritti Nirodha, as it said in the sutras of Patanjali, Chitta Vritti Nirodha, the Vrittis Nirod. Hmm? The, the Vrittis in the Chitta are done away with. Hmm? In Ashtanga Yoga, this is the goal. In Bhakti Yoga, the goal is that and more. The more is that we, we invite the, the bhakti-vritti, which is otherworldly, hmm? to come into the heart. If you, if you compare the heart to a, a clean heart to a placid pond, let's say. Let's say you come into the forest and, and, and on the trail and you come to this beautiful pond. It's just still. And you sit there and think about that. You just came as a beautiful, still pond and... You just try to bring that into your mind and your mind becomes still and peaceful, a beautiful pond and it's just everything's flat and just mm, and 
so forth. Hmm? Very calming and so, so on. So we want to make, in one sense, the citta like this. Instead of, if you come to the pond and it's very peaceful, then some kids come and start throwing in stones and jumping in and on, then you've got to get up and leave. Hmm? And all of a sudden it's like, oh, these waves and, it's, uh, and so forth. Hmm? So yoga, Ashtanga yoga, for example, is, is you want to keep the kids out of the pond. <laughs> Something like that. You know, keep it real peaceful like this. Uh, cleanse out all these different vrittis and just shanti, 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 om. Now, granted, it was troublesome moving under the influence of those vrittis, being chased by the vrittis of the mind, having to do this, I have to do that, I have to go here, I have to go there, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. Hmm? That was, now I'm peaceful. Hmm? Nothing to do, why should I move? And so forth. But bhakti wants to go from there, so to speak. In fact, wants us to arrive at there by a spiritual methodology that will take us there and more. Let's go back to the pond. You're in the pond. You're there. It's very peaceful. Hmm? It's very. It's all just placid and quiet and so forth. You sit there for a while and it's just real peaceful. And then, and then you know you feel like, well, I got to do something. <laughs> so I'm just giving an example. So let's say you take a stone and you throw it in the pond. But just you here and the pond, you throw it in the pond. Does that make the pond unpeaceful? No, because you landed a stone in one place and then these ripples go out concentrically, all in concentric circles. And it's like, wow, it's, 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 it's very calming, but, but something more. It's got these, a different kind of vritti mm-hmm, than just a bunch of kids jumping in or stones falling in from all different places. I've put something in the pond and these nice waves I'm starting to move now I was still shanti 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 now the pool is starting to make me move but it's moving in a different way hmm? not as if I'm being chased by things I have to do but it's a way of ex- expressing fullness I'm so full so statically full hmm, that now some dynamism is, 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 is starting to foster. Out of the static, something dynamic is coming. Hmm? So I'm, I'm finding there's a possibility of difference within unity, within the oneness. The oneness being the cool pond, the quiet pond. There's nothing else. It's just peaceful. Now I'm making movement, but not in a way that disturbs the peace, hmm? but adds to the peace. Hmm? Let's say, you, let's say you make a pact with a nation that you are at war with and you have peace. And everybody goes, peace. Oh, we're at peace for a moment or two. And then they start to celebrate. <laughs> then they want to move to peace. What do we do now? You know, is it just going to be peace forever? Hmm? You know, we made peace. Okay, now let's do something, right? Not war, but let's do something. Let's make love, not war. Hmm? So, <laughs> love is different than peace. But peace is included in love. In that real love, wise love, makes a peace 
with the war of the, uh, that the false self is, is got us involved in. We're, we're at war with one another. Because hmm? you think it's cold and I think it's hot. I mean, I'm just giving you a crude example, but it, obviously it accelerates from there. Um, and nations are at war and people are at war and you know, brothers and sisters and arguing and so forth. And we argue with ourselves for that matter. Hmm? So, so, now, even if you took, let's say you took two stones and threw them in the pond, and three and four and five and six and a hundred and a hundred and eight, but they all went in the exact same center, then there'd be so many ripples. So in bhakti, you see, we can have so many others. In yoga, you best be alone. <laughs> you best be in a cave. I mean, ultimately. <laughs> the yogis in the cave alone. In yoga marg, one will advance on the path by detachment. In bhakti marg, the path of bhakti, we advance by attachment to other devotees in whose company we get strength and a, and, and, and a common mind, if you will, a like mind to support our practice. And the practice is, um, is also, in many respects, congregational. Here we're all sitting and singing and some people are dancing and so forth. Um, so, it's, so we want to invoke, if you will, or invite hmm, the bhakti vritti into our lives, another, another world, otherworldly vritti hmm, into our consciousness. And the result of this is that a good, uh, the best defense is a good offense, they say. Hmm? So bhakti is kind of on the offense. In other words, we are, we are going after the, the absolute, we're singing the name of Krishna. Hmm? If you're in, if inviting Krishna, for example, into the heart, these other vrittis are going to go away. Hmm? automatically. We don't have to struggle to retire them as much as we have to posture ourselves such that, that Krishna might be disposed to take notice of us. There may be somebody he is taking notice of, so we might think, let me attach myself to that person. That would be a good idea. Then maybe some... Uh, Krishna's uh, grace and so may come in my direction. So, uh, uh, so, di- to, so to dismantle this uh, false identity, this false ego, we really we need to hear a little bit theoretically to get an orientation. You know, like you, you're here now. Here, 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 here's the battle, and here are your weapons, and so forth. And uh, you know, I'm going to give you a little training and how to use them and what the what the enemy is and how how what a culprit he is you know they said the, the fellow ran down the uh, the mind ran down the street after robbing the bank yelling thief thief somebody robbed the bank hmm? you understand and everybody goes to him and says which way did he go thank you so much this is how He's a, he's a white-collar criminal, this ego. Hmm? This false ego. He's very subtle. He can take your whole bank account, just, just like that. Hmm? Uh, he's very subtle. Very, very difficult to, to, to track down and sort out and so forth. Hmm? So, 
we can try to do that by introspection, watching the ego, and, and, and so but it's very difficult, very subtle. But by a rather than merely by introspection and the force by our own intellect, so to speak, to invite transrational practices such as chanting, meditation, and so forth into our life. This will this this what this does is it well it it cleanses the heart or the chitta of these vrittis. And so you can see that, that in a kind of a magical way, in a sense. I mean, it's systematic and whatnot, but it's kind of invisible to the naked eye. But um, that false self is unraveling. Somebody's doing the unraveling. Hmm? And that's the real self, right? Hmm? And by, by availing itself to good advice from outside of the maze, if you will, of material existence, hmm? applying itself to spiritual practices that are transrational, um, it gradually starts to unravel, and the real self starts to come to the fore. And um, that in the context of a budding and growing relationship with the Absolute that is, that is, that is ecstatic in nature, hmm? it's full of ananda. Hmm? And so, as we replace the nirananda, means no bliss, of material existence, that, we, that you know, we're trying for bliss and so forth, we get at most some euphoric experience, like we won the game, or, you know, I found him, you know. <laughs> that can turn out to be different <laughs> in time, but um, th- th- these kind of material euphoria is that they, these, this has, this has no comparison to what we're talking about of real spiritual bliss mm-hmm. I mean <laughs> just a little of that would change your life forever mm-hmm. it's worth making a real endeavor for serious spiritual practice to get some some experience mm-hmm. like waves coming over you mm-hmm. washing away Washing away the f- false sense of identity, and it from in the heart it brings tears to the eyes of joy. Hmm? It's over. It's ending. That 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 false self that been chasing me, that I've been chasing, it's coming to an end. It's over. Material existence, samsara, is unraveling right before my eyes, within me. This this, this is. Just, and this is just the beginning, if you will, of the joy of the ananda of bhakti. Hmm? To end the problem is just the beginning of, this, of what the solution involves. As I said, there's more than just ending the war. There's, light, there's the love also, the life of love. Hmm? So you're entering into something that tuanantam, brahmasukam tuanantam. It has no end. There's no bottom to that. Hmm? You're in touch with something that, you, that will make you a student forever. That's good. We are all, in this, this field, we are all students forever. I might sit here two inches above you, but uh, <laughs> we have, I have a teacher. We are all students forever. And he's a t- student, and he looks up, and so on and so forth. Krishna, the idea of Krishna. Krishna is 
the idea, the theological idea of Krishna is God trying to figure himself out. That's Krishna. What is love doing to me? That's what Krishna means. Krishna is surrounded by devotees. Radha, for example, is the pinnacle of love. Krishna is trying to figure out my, my, God's figure, God, my devotees love me. What, what is that doing to me? What am I? What is it about me that makes them, me so attractive to them? Hmm? Even at some point, he, he will think, I'd like to experience myself from that perspective. Hmm? This is a very kind of high theological idea, but <laughs> Krishna is God in existential crisis. Hmm? Trying to fathom the depths of love. Hmm? That's why we say Jairadhe, Jairadhe. In our bhakti tradition, mine, speaking from that perspective, uh, 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 Radha's love is higher than Krishna. Hmm? So you have Krishna, you have us, you have Radha that personifies bhakti, hmm? bringing us together to a higher point, so to speak, uh, of union. Hmm? So, uh, that's exciting. I mean, it's an exciting idea. In other words, what I'm saying is, if we're students forever, that's, that's kind of cool. <laughs> you don't have to work. No. Uh, you know, <laughs> you got, there's always something to learn, in other words. You can never grow. Yeah, there you go. There you go. That's right. Peter Pan was right. You, can, you, you never have to grow up. Hmm? And this is what we kind of feel like. At the, you know, we kind of get disappointed we have to grow up and things aren't as, you know, exciting as, as, as we thought hmm? in, our, in our childhood, just to use that example. So Bhakti is saying you don't have to grow up. It's okay. What you kind of felt as a child, we want to help you to, to be an eternal child, but a wise, eternal child. That's a far-out idea. <laughs> you know, you can think about it now. If I could take all the wisdom that I have of my so many years of experience and take it back to my youth, <laughs> I would be in a great position. Something like that. So this is kind of the, the, uh, the idea. Hmm? Eternally youthful but well-informed at the same time. Hmm? So it's a very exciting kind of prospect that as I say, uh, the impression that it conjures in our mind is that, that the spiritual life has movement, more than just peace. Hmm? That's kind of the interim arrest from the, from the struggle of material existence, and then we move on in the real ego, which is an identity that's also formed by association. So, for example, the false ego is formed by association with things. We think things are the best things in life when things are not the best things in life. The best things in life are not things. Hmm? It's us. Consciousness, that's the best thing. Hmm? That's what makes things worth having. <laughs> um, it gives them meaning and so forth. So, so, anyway, a false ego, right? a false identity is formed by attachment to things and labeling them as mine and, and the impressions coming from that interaction with matter that 
makes these distinctions, sankalpa vikalpa. I like this, I don't like that. This is good, this is bad. That's happy, this is sad. And that's me. Hmm? So that identity is formed by association. Now this self, which is a witness, this real self, the, the experiencer, hmm? the conscious experiencer, is sitting there still. Hmm? And in bhakti, it starts to associate with this invite, as I say, this bhakti vritti into, into its life. Hmm? So it starts to associate on the other side, hmm? in the realm of consciousness. It's now pursuing a, a significant consciousness other. In material life, we often you know, pursue a significant other, a friend, a lover, and so forth. Hmm? Because we have some capacity, some propensity to love, and we want to fulfill it as a living entity. Hmm? In bhakti, we repose our propensity for loving hmm, in transcendence. That means, if that's to be fulfilled, there has to be a significant other, but a significant consciousness other. Hmm? That's constituted of consciousness like we are. So that's Krishna, the source, it means. Uh, so there's a relationship that develops. And on the re basis of the relationship and a growing and budding attachment, not to things, but to the source, this starts to form an identity, hmm? a real identity. We have an identity without that as a conscious entity with a, with a capacity to experience, who is in pursuit of love and so forth. Hmm? But it's the fullness of the real self develops in the context of bhakti. It's relational. Just like the false self is, a, is, a, is based on a relationship with things. The real self, in the full sense of the term, in bhakti, is based on a relationship with, but on the other side, if you will, with, in the consciousness world. Hmm? So, for example, we have a stage on the inner landscape in bhakti called asakti. First comes ruchi. Before that comes nishta. I'll go through them. First there's sadhu sangha. Hmm? We have sadhu sangha. In sadhu sangha, shraddha comes. Shraddha is called faith, but it's a kind of a, it's not a belief. It's kind of a, a knowing. This is where I belong. Hmm? This is where I belong. This is my guide. I'm in the right place. Everything I could ever want in life could be found here. This sense. This we call this shraddha. So, so then after that, as that shraddha arrives in the context uh, we continue to have this sadhu sangha. Hmm? Then in the context of that sadhu sangha, as I say, one sadhu stands out and we think, this is my guide. Hmm? Then we make a connection with the guide, hmm? the guru. Then the guide gives us certain practices. We call it bhajana kriya, the life, the kriya, the activities of, of spiritual practice and so forth. Then we do those practices. And what happens in those practices is that these vrittis, I was talking about these unwanted things that they come out of the heart. They start to come out. It's called anartha nivritti. Anartha means false values start to be exposed for what they are. And they're shed. Hmm? And as they're shed, one's practice starts to become more and more steady. 
It's not interrupted because there's nothing there to interrupt it, no vrittis. Hmm? So it reaches the stage we call nishta, become very steady. Nothing can break the practice, no distraction. So you can sit and chant and not be distracted by other thoughts. And so because of the power then of the concentration, the fixed uh, practice, taste starts to come. Taste. You see this Krishna Nam, the name of Krishna, it's very sweet. Hmm? You may say, I chant, it doesn't seem so sweet to me, but there's an example that's often given. If you have jaundice, then sugar cane tastes very bitter. But sugar cane is a cure for jaundice. So if you take the sugar cane when you have jaundice and you chew on it, it's bitter, what happens is the jaundice starts to go away and then suddenly the sugar cane starts to taste sweet. It always was sweet. Hmm? But you couldn't taste it because of the, uh, the jaundice. So because of our distractions and so forth, we can't taste everything that's there, the sweetness in the name. Hmm? And what's in a name? What's in a name? What's in a name? Just by material example, you know, everything's in a name. They say, did you get his name? Hmm? Now they have the social security number. You're, you have a number. Did you get his number? You can take a whole bank account, the whole identity. So theologically speaking, there's a lot in the name. Hmm? So much in the name. That name has gotten rid of the vrittis. Now it's, so now it's, it's caused you to just focus on it alone. Hmm? As a result of that, the sweetness that it is made of, it's constituted of the ananda, hmm? starts to come out. Start to taste the ananda, and then you start to become attached to your practices. The practice that previously was medicine has now become food. It was medicine. I thought I, sh- I have to do my practice. Hmm? Now it has become food. I can't live without it. Let me sit and eat. It's the difference is sit down with a hungry hungry person and eat a meal than and for a sick person to take medicine. <laughs> so the practice changes in this way at this stage. Attachment to bhakti. Then what happens in the context is this attachment to bhakti, tasting the, tasting the sweetness of the name, one starts to become attached to the object of bhakti, to Krishna, in a particular form. Hmm? He appears to us, Krishna and offers himself in terms of a particular relationship and transcendence. And so attachment forms to him, and then this real ego, the real self, starts to develop in terms of his fullest potential. Hmm? Identity is formed, a spiritual identity. And then one enters the stage of bhakti and ecstasy. Bhava bhakti. Hmm? Bhakti and ecstasy. And then this internal, invisible practice of cultivating that identity in relation to Krishna and so forth. Then it, that churning of bhava turns into what we call prem. This is the wise love of God, prem. And now the journey has reached its maturation. But the nature of prem is that it's unlimited and always increasing. (laughs) The static bliss of Brahman attained in, for example, Shanti, 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 using that example, it's a static kind of a bliss. I mean, we're using the word static for bliss. So, I mean, it's blissful. <laughs> I mean, but comparatively, this is speaking about a dynamic kind of bliss. 
that has that it, that again it's 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 unlimited but always always increasing. This is the kind of you have to get your head around that. Hmm? You have to kind of stop thinking to understand that. So this is a little bit anyway about I know I've gone into some depth to answer your question there <laughs> about the false identity and the real identity. But what you liked, and I appreciate that, and I do too, and it's very common sense, is that sometimes in spiritual disciplines we talk about doing away with the ego, doing away with the ego, but the nice part here is that there is a there's a real ego too. There's a real identity. Because after all, if the ego or individual identity that causes me to think it's hot and you to think it's cold and so on and so forth is to be destroyed in the name of peace, then okay, but I mean, there's nobody to enjoy the peace with. <laughs> there's just one and there's nobody yet. There's no other. It's, for call it, I call it kind of a static, uh, ananda, static bliss if you will, whereas in bhakti, then uh, there's there's um, there's others to participate, which um, makes it a little, the spice of life, so to speak. So that help? Uh, yeah, quite a bit. So when you, I have a couple. Of, I don't even know why, but when you're cleaning the mirror, when you get to the place where you're, you're the neutral cleaner of the mirror, right? Yeah. Right. That's the the yeah. false self just comes right back up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Then let me ask you this. If Krishna if is God trying to figure himself out or love, yeah. that's yeah. the representation of him on the earth. Is There is a God that's total grace, right? And that's total order. That's total what? Grace? Well, grace is what I use. Yeah, God is full of grace. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and order. And order. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, order. I mean, when we say that Krishna's trying to figure himself out, it, it, there's order to that, too. That's, that's a pretty interesting concept, but uh, that's kind of like a little more than 500 hours of yoga certification required for, <laughs> for, that, for that discussion. <laughs> yes? Yeah, and no. Yes, and no. You'll never get a straight answer out of me. things but um, and that's an interesting question I think on a lower level people often are attracted because of cultural upbringing and so on and so forth and um, a lot of that attraction if you will just moving to see you a little bit more is um, often um, tends to be superficial hmm? cultural and I was raised in this and and, and, and so forth and 
it, it tends to be kind of a like a use the example of, of of a Catholic example, so a kind of a nominal Catholic, hmm? without having thought about it deeply and so forth. So that's often the basis of the attraction. But there are deeper reasons for such attractions. And you see in me, well, I'm from born in America, but I have this cross-cultural sign. And so I think that, um, that, that very much our attraction to a particular avatar or descent divine manifestation will depend on our association in a real sense when that attraction is really deep for example in Hinduism we have many different avatars right there's Ram, there's Krishna, there's Varaha, Kurma, this one, that so many different avatars um, and and there are devotees of Ram there are devotees of Krishna and so on and so forth different kinds of bhakti hmm? and largely that where, where, where that difference comes from is who they associated with when they actually started to th think deeply rather than just nominally be part of a particular tradition what is life, what is its meaning and, and, and pursue, uh, let's say, enlightenment and so they went to hear from different people and so forth and a certain sadhu became the principal person in their life then they're going to get those people, they're going to get a sangskar for that particular tradition. Hmm? And, and, and they're going to grow in that. So it's largely by association with saintly people in different orders and different uh, traditions that brings about our uh, particular attraction. So one who actually has substantial rather than a cultural-based attraction that person's attraction will be fostered upon those who are attracted to that person. And it's kind of contagious in a way. Hmm? So, um, so yeah, within, within, within the Hindu tradition, within Bhakti tradition, there are all types of different types of uh, devotees. And there's a, that spiritual bias is very beautiful. Hmm? There's a story of Hanuman. Krishna was in his palatial setting in Dwarka, and he sent his carrier, the bird Garuda, to talk to Hanuman. Hanuman, you know Hanuman? Hanuman is the monkey servitor of Ram. Hmm? So Krishna sent Garuda and said, there's a devotee of mine, such and such place, he looks like this, go tell him to come, I want to see him. So Garuda flies over to see Hanuman, says, Krishna is in Dwarka, he wants to see you. So Hanuman says, okay, well tell him I'll be there in a minute. So Garuda flies back and says, what kind of devotee is this you sent me to see? You tell me, he said, I'll see you in a minute. Here I was ready to carry him and everything. So Krishna chuckled. He said, go back and tell him that, that, that Ram is in Dwarka and wants to see him. So Garuda flies back and says, Ram is now in Dwarka and he wants to see you. So, so Hanuman says, okay, I'll be there in a minute. So Garuda says, what is going on? So he starts to fly back to Dwarka, and he's fast, right? He's flying back, and then he sees Hanuman coming the other way, saying, Ram! So the implication was, he didn't want to wait for Garuda to go there. He jumped all the way there. He's known for his jumping. He jumped all the way there, and he was jumping back. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you see, this is beautiful. 
This is the kind of difference in bhakti that I'm talking about that doesn't disturb the unity. Hmm? Loving Ram, some loving Krishna, and they may even argue about it, but it's beautiful. It's very charming, you see, very becoming. And this is largely a result of sadhusanga, real association. So this whole idea, real spiritual life comes from up to down. Hmm? In other words, if God wants us to know about God, we can know about God. Otherwise, good luck. If the finite wants to know the infinite, how will that be possible? Oh, if the infinite wants the finite to know, then the infinite can do anything. Hmm? Then the impossible becomes possible. So grace is a good word that you use. We need God's grace. And it comes in different forms. But the main form that God's grace comes in it's sadhusanga. This is the kripa shakti of in bhakti. Kripa means mercy, grace. Shakti means like the power. The power of grace, Krishna's power of grace, Vishnu Narayan's power of grace is manifested in the hearts of his devotees who share that just by being what they are. Hmm? People say, I don't believe in God. I would say, do you believe in love of God? Here's a person, he chants and falls over, like Chaitanya, Sri Chaitanya, in ecstasy. You say you don't believe in God. Here's love of God. He chants the name and he falls over in ecstasy and tears pour out of his eyes, his hairs stand on end and so forth. Oh, that's epilepsy. Hmm? But it's contagious. <laughs> in other words, if there's love of God, there must be God. God is in love of God. And so who's the bearer of love of God, that's contagious. Hmm? So as we meet different, over different lifetimes hmm, and so forth, we start to develop an attraction for a particular manifestation of divinity. Then it's also the sorting out of all the different manifestations of divinity and thinking about them. Like, let's take the Buddha. You know, we, we don't, without being sectarian, we, there, there, there is the Buddhist sect, there is the Krishna Bhakti sect, there's the Jesus sect, let's say, you know, Christianity and so forth. These are all different manifestations of divinity. And so they all represent something. They all appeal to something within us. And the Buddha, by his own definition of himself, represents the wisdom that material life is about suffering. That's it. You know what the Four Noble Truths of the Buddha are? Can we say it? The Four Noble Truths of the Buddha are life is about dukkha, misery. The source of that is Trishna, not Krishna, but Trishna means desire. Hmm? And what? By right livelihood, it can be overcome. I forget the fourth one. It can hmm? be overcome. It can be overcome, and the fourth one is the Noble Eightfold Path of right livelihood and so forth. So the sum and substance of what the Buddha as an avatar represents is the wisdom that material life is a recipe for suffering. Krishna says the same thing in the Gita. He says, Dukkha yonaya evate. He says the senses are the womb, the contact of the senses with the objects of senses like sight with forms and hearing the sounds of this world is the womb from which suffering takes birth. He says, Dukalayama shashvatam. 
He said, well, you know, hey, it's a little kind of pessimistic, Swami, to be saying that the world is just about suffering. So Krishna says it like this. Well, Arjuna, if you don't think so, then I'll tell you this. Let me put it in another word. He says, Dukalayam, it's all about suffering. He said, but, but I, I kind of like it, some of it. So Krishna says, well, then, Ashashvatam. How do you like that? You can't keep it. Now it becomes <laughs> really miserable. <laughs> I like it, but I can't, I can't keep it. Oh, so this is, this is wise. These are simple words. And this, is not a, this is not some dogma, you see. These are universal truths. We can all chuckle and go, yeah, well, yeah. yeah but, to, but to focus on that hmm? and to make your life around that, that, what kind of life will that be? Hmm? That's a challenge, but that will be, that'll be a powerful life, a meaningful life. Hmm? So anyway, the Buddha focused entirely on this one aspect. It's huge and suffering. Christ, maybe we could say, represents the sacrifice. You know, that we should sacrifice. Krishna represents kind of the heart of divinity, the love life of the absolute, something like that. So maybe according to our evolution, we may be attracted to one another for those, what they actually represent and how that represents with us in terms of where we're at in particular. So there are different reasons. Does that help? Yeah, okay. Is it possible to... Um, have that sense of being mirrored uh, without the attachment to an avatar? Or does it take a lot longer? Well, um, let's take Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, for example. Hmm? He says that it's possible. But what he recommends is Ishvara Pranidhan. You know it from the sutra? This is what the sutras recommend. It's brought up three, four times. Hmm? He's emphasizing. He said, "This is Ishvara Pranidhan means to be attached to an avatar. Basically, Ishvara means God. Pranidhan means like this." Hmm? He's really saying, "This is what yoga is really all about." Hmm? You don't have to fold your legs. You got to fold your hands. <laughs> you know, you don't have to stretch just up, just enough to bend over like this. <laughs> He says, this is really yoga. This will really help. <laughs> uh, you know, I understand also the uh, reluctance, in a sense, that's inborn within us towards that. That's also our material conditioning, to bow to somebody or some avatar or some mythic, as it would appear, character and so forth, especially in the modern and industrial society and so forth. We really, in the Western world, we're really kind of programmed to think, we are the rugged individuals and we'll make it ourselves. You know, but I mean, it stands to reason that the greatest journey in life, um, we might need a little help along the way, a grace. So if you want to like run up to the top of the mountain, you know, you can try it. But if somebody's throwing a rope down and you ignore it, I mean, at your own risk, you know, you might fall back. Um, so I kind of look at it like, well, take all the help you can get, kind of would be a wise policy. Hmm? So, what's the time? Time, time? 8.20. So I think we should wait until tomorrow. Tomorrow we meet again. We can have more questions. I think we only have a couple minutes, right, before the end of the evening. 8.30. Okay, short one.
I give long answers, so that's why. <laughs> so you've been talking about bhakti, uh, and then for I, you know, in, in Indian culture, there's different avatars, and you know, we talk about the Vishnu avatars, but then again, there's Lord Shiva, there's Ganesh. So many people are showing some devotion to these different personalities of demi gods. Yeah. Can bhakti be applied to those personalities? Can you be a devotee of Shiva and Ganesha? You can, but, um, but there's two things you want to think about if you, if you want to pursue a spiritual path. You want to analyze what is the sadhya and what is the sadhana. What is the goal that the path is positing and what is the means to attain it? So, you know, we should examine with an open mind and hear from different traditions and so forth. What's the goal? Hmm? And what's the means? And so that would be a good starting point. Hmm? So if you, if, you, if, you, if you read about Ganesh and what worshiping Ganesh results in, Ganesh, the name means Ganesh. Gana, Gana means the common people. And Asia means the Lord. The implication is the common people, it's a crude term, but the common people, the commoners, we all want things. Kmart shoppers, in other words, it means. <laughs> Ganesh is, the, is for the God of the Kmart shoppers. <laughs> God, forgive me. Uh, the, and so, uh, in, in Hinduism, anyway, this is his position. He caters to those people who just really want things. So you can be a devotee of Ganesh and you can pray to him for material, to clear the path so that you can get things better. Hmm? So the goal is to get things. Now you might think, well, I'm not sure if that's the goal I'm interested in, so maybe I'm going to make Ganesh my, my ishta, my, my, my deity and so forth. And so with all of them, so they all, you know, it's not just... I like him, he looks cool, he's got four arms, you know, and he's riding on a tiger, or she is, or, you know, and, you know. I like her, she's standing on top of that guy, you know, <laughs> the pork, <laughs> yeah, you know, there's reasons they're depicted <laughs> like that and so forth. You've got to sort, sort all that out. Hmm? You could, you could, but, but you could start, you know, further along too, you, you could. You could. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's because Ganesh, you see, is a devotee of Narasimha. <laughs> so Ganesh has a deity. That's the other thing that he's worshiping, and Narasimha is the one who removes the impediments in the path of bhakti. So it's very roundabout. If you want to worship Ganesh. It's a good connection with Narasimha, who removes the obstacles for bhakti and so on and so forth. So, yeah, well, they're worshiping which people? Oh, yeah, yeah. Who are the devas worshiping? Exactly. And so, yeah, that has to be, you know, sorted all out. So, um, also, of course. In, Another way to look at this is that one who is advanced in bhakti hmm, understands 
that all these different names of the gods and goddesses are actually different names for Krishna also. Hmm? So they can chant them, but they can understand them in context. The problem is when we worship a god or goddess out of context, when we worship in context, then we can, even worshiping that god or goddess, we can actually grow in terms of the ultimate goal that, the, that they themselves may be pursuing, for example. Hmm? Anyway. So we, we like all the gods and all the goddesses and all the people and all the avatars and uh, we have our own favorite at the same time. That's, that's, that's not a bad thing. And we should think that our path is the best for us. Otherwise, why are we on it? So a little passion you know, for your own path, that's, that's allowable and desirable. That's required. Hmm? Thank you very much. Om Hare Krishna.